I am Riyad Hubala, and this is the Talk to Riyad podcast. I've been in FMCG grocery sales for over 10 years. I've worked for Imperial Tobacco, Kellogg's, and I'm currently at Brindisa Spanish Foods. I've successfully sold and listed lines in Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Boots, Planet Organic, and to independent retailers, Budgeons, Londis, and Simply Fresh. In the last few years, I've noticed lots of product innovation on shelf from new and exciting brands. Some of these go on and become household names. Many only make it to a few stores and never see their full potential. To help young brands, I'll be talking to retailers, buyers, and food entrepreneurs. I want to hear what makes them decide to give a product a go on shelf, what supports they need from suppliers to improve sales, and I'll ask them to share best practices every brand should be doing to help get three things right, get on shelf, create sales, and make some profits. Let's begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is the third podcast of uh, Talk to Riyadh. So for the first two, we spoke to two retailers and they um, they explained what they would like from young challenger brands to make it on their shelf. And for this one, episode three, got something really exciting. I'm talking to Chris from Wilfred's Aperitif. And uh, Chris is a brand owner. So here now we hear the story from his side of the story instead of from the retailer's side. So Chris, welcome. Thank you, Riyadh. Pleasure, pleasure to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And Chris, as I said, you've got your own non-alcoholic drink, an aperitif. I guess before we go into that, it would be worth you say a bit about yourself, your background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm actually not from the drink space originally. So I was um, studied as an engineer and actually I worked for Hitachi, a Japanese uh, big Japanese company. I worked um, for about six years designing Japanese high-speed trains for the UK, so very different background. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, uh, loved, loved it, but I felt like uh, I had more in me and, and different things I wanted to do in this in this world. So I ended up doing a master's in business um, at a school called INSEAD, which which sent me to France and to Singapore. And, um, and coming back from that, I... Um, uh, I, work, I, I worked for another company called What If, which is all in innovation. And the idea behind What If is you help big companies come up with uh, new ventures, new ideas, new business proposals, um, and you pull, pull them out, test them in the market. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of like being a startup for, for big businesses. Uh, but it, okay. there was only so long I could do that before I wanted to launch my own business, which is how I ended up launching Wilfred's non-alcoholic aperitif. And with the operative, how how did that come about? Of all the things, being from an engineering background to a non-alcoholic drink, what 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 stemmed the idea? Yeah, good good question. It's not a straight straight road from uh, <laughs> engineer to to drink maker. <laughs> um, I I've always had a passion for drinks. To be honest, I've um, if you look at my kitchen, you know I've got kombuchas brewing in the corner. There's a moment in time I was doing some. 50 different iced teas to try and make the perfect iced tea at home. Um, I've got cocktails that are aging in casks. Um, you know, so I'm always tinkering and I'm always making these drinks. And I love to make complex cocktails too, you know. It's um, it's one of my passions. And I started to um, get a little, little bit actually embarrassed when I'd have friends over and family and they came over and they wanted to, you know, I'd, I'd make these really good 
alcoholic cocktails uh, and they'd, they'd come to me and say, look, Chris, I'm not drinking. And this was happening more and more. You know, the older you get, the more there's people who don't want to drink because of work, because they're driving, because, you know, they're pregnant. There's hundreds of reasons not to be drinking or they're just cutting yeah. out. And um, the reasons are bigger and bigger. And I think, you know, if you just look at Canada's effectively now said uh, drinking is not good for you in any quantity whatsoever, um, it just shows that we are moving towards a world that just drinks less. And and I, I'd open up my drinks cabinet and, you know, there'd be like five different types of specific craft gins and like whiskeys and cognacs and all these amazing drinks. Um, but then they'd say, oh, I'm not drinking alcohol. And I was like, oh, shit, I, you know, what, what am I going to serve you, basically? Um, and I'd open up the fridge and it's just a different experience. You know, you open up your drinks cabinet, it's wild, it's wonderful. And you open up your fridge and, you know, there's cheeses there and yogurts and like, uh, and then you get an orange juice because that's the best thing you can serve them. And it's just not the same drinking experience. So what I wanted to do was create a non-alcoholic drink that had that mm -hmm. same complex taste profile and drinking experience as an alcoholic drink. And that's how I started kind of my journey of creating Wilfred's non-alcoholic aperitif. And then I, I Googled before before our call an aperitif. It says it is it is something that stimulates the appetite before a meal. And some people have it after a meal as well. I must confess, I've never I've never had one. You know, I've never um come across a drink like that. Mm. So um is it something like in the UK? You know, seeing an aperitif, is it something that you are seeing a trend towards? Definitely, definitely. So, um, so actually, an aperitif originally, um, well, originally it was from Germany, but it's best known for being from Italy. So, if you think of Campari, Aperol, Select, Sinar, you know, there's there's a lot of different types of aperitifs, and within the aperitif style, uh, there's a lot of subcategories like vermouths, amaros, etc. Um, but what makes an aperitif particularly unique is um, is that bittersweet profile, um, and it's always been a, a an alcohol that's that's been in the category of like uh, of alcoholic drinks. So um, mm -hmm. if most you know most complex cocktails actually have aperitif in them, um, but in the UK there's started you know there's been a big big growth in particularly aperol spritz which is uh, effectively Aperol as an aperitif um, and, uh, and and the spritz has been booming in the UK, in the US. It's starting to boom around the world as well and, and Aperol has been a big push of that. But if you look at the likes of Campari, for example, that's been around forever as well, you know, and people have been drinking that in their drinks whether they know it or not. So it's um it's it's definitely been around, but it's um it's a drink that, as you said, you tend to have before meal to stimulate the appetite. Uh, and uh, yeah. it tends to open up your your your, your stomach. And I read, actually read the other day. I didn't. I never fully understood why. And and apparently, it's it, it kind of triggers uh, an effect similar. Okay, it's not to be absolutely clear. The drink is not poisonous whatsoever. <laughs> but the bitterness profile that triggers a reaction which tends to empty your stomach. And uh, uh, in the same way that a poison might empty your stomach, and um, but it has in such a light effect and in, in a way that's completely uh, harmless and in fact can be good for you, um, and that opens up uh, your appetite. And so it's usually used before a meal, yeah. even sometimes after a meal uh, as a digestive as well. And then would you use it as normal as your drink, I guess, if you choose? Yes. Give it alcohol. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. So I would, um, 
if if you mean if you mean would I use it myself and and drink an apple? No, as in normal, like somebody could buy it and say, well, I want something more complex instead of orange juice or drinking, um, say, a cider. So something that they're just drinking, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So you can you can. Uh, I mean, I mean, in the case of Wilfords. It's a non-alcoholic drink, so uh, you you can replace you know you replace that alcohol alcoholic drink moment with a complex drink, um, especially mm-hmm. as a spritz. You kind of serve it with tonic water. Um, you serve it in a wine glass with ice and with a slice of orange, and it makes a really bright, vibrant cocktail. Um, that's bittersweet. It's not overly sweet like like mocktails are. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's very much um, a complex flavor profile, full of botanicals and. Um, and and you'll see when you taste it, you kind of get different. It's a bit of a journey that you go on with the tasting, as you would, you know, as you would a wine, for example. You know, it's, it's a complex flavor profile. Um, it's not it's not an overly sweet juice juice like mocktail. Yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw that. Well, I read that um, you know you went through different processes in terms of like settling on the ingredients, and I can imagine being an engineer like someone innovative how you know like all the complexities of that how did you settle and what what sort of processes did you go through to to say okay guys this is it yeah great great question um it was not a straightforward process if (laughs) and i think that's probably uh that's probably one of my personal big learnings i thought this will take you know a week i can do it and it's done no it, it took time and if you've got a you've got to have a sort of a minimum level of quality as well uh, to ensure you create a good good quality product but the way i started um i literally started making a batch in my kitchen at home you know i um i bought ingredients from all over the world so i had about 50 60 different botanicals um and by botanicals i mean you know things like bitter orange uh, rhubarb um what else i had i had um i had roots from different different trees which are famous for adding flavor and bitterness profiles um so i tried all of these different ingredients and i I'd batch put them start start creating an aperitif at home, um, and mm-hmm. you know macerating it um, in in different liquids until I I got to something I was happy with, and that took that took about two months of testing, um, and then I had to go from that batch once I was happy with what I had, I you know effectively I I tested it with a few friends and family, blind tested it to make sure that people mm-hmm. didn't have any judgment as best as possible. Um, and uh, once people said they liked it and they actually thought it was alcoholic when it was non-alcoholic, I knew I had a product at that point in time. It then took me another year and a bit, um, almost a year and a half, to find a manufacturer to work with to yeah. move the recipe from a home batch recipe to one that I could produce at scale, uh, because it's a very different process. And uh, that yeah. took another hundred plus uh, recipes to to get that right, and about eighteen months total. So it's a lot. I thought I could do it all in a, everything in about three months. I mean, I, I I didn't even you know I wasn't close. <laughs> it took so much yeah. longer than I thought it would. You know, when you you mentioned there the food manufacturer, drinks manufacturer taking mm. different hundred recipes, is that because I guess going through the manufacturing process? To get it back to what you had it in your kitchen. Exactly. You kind of um, the way you purchase. I say more the way you purchase ingredients um, at small scale is not the same as the way you purchase ingredients at, at larger scale, um, and that's particularly mm-hmm. true in my experience of drinks, um, where you 
you, you can't just you know you can't just do a direct substitute so you have to almost recreate a drink from scratch what i did have though for my home batch was you know i had a flavor profile we could work towards um and that's mm. that was really helpful so that was that was the real benefit of doing it myself and you know authentically it's the flavor that that for me was authentic and made a good tasting aperitif um and um so that the big the big challenge though is can you can you create a a product that still tastes good um still does what you want it to at scale uh, that's that's yeah. where i found the the real challenge was i guess yeah it's a, it's a whole new ball game but as you say because you've got the benchmark you always go back to it and you you know exactly. you, you work on that and then once say once the product was produced or before that even i know you mentioned like friends family people are not drinking but did you, or when setting up the design, the ingredients, everything, how did you picture the end consumer? Or is it yourself? You pictured yourself? Yeah, the the, um, the end consumer, um, I think I've always found that for my particular product, there's there's a definite, so there's, there's, a, there's a clear consumer, which is those who are not drinking, you know? Um, one in five people in the UK, adults in the UK, don't drink at all. Um, if you look at the younger generation, 18 to 25 year old, it's about one in three don't drink. So um, that's a place to start. You know, if you've got if you've got those stats, if you know that there's an open market there to be filled and to be answered to, that's where you can start uh, answering that and looking at those types of consumers. You know, then there was specific consumers of a specific moment in time so for example you had a bar you're with friends and you're not drinking because i don't know one you've driven two you're on yes. medication three you're you're pregnant four you've got health reasons not to do it five you've got work the next day there's hundreds of like specific reasons not to be drinking on a particular moment um, yeah and then there's um but then there's the actual the biggest consumer uh first is actually those who do drink alcohol but who mm -hmm. occasionally don't want to drink alcohol. So it's not actually those specific case scenarios. And um, um, the challenge has been trying to narrow down exactly who that consumer is. If you look at, for example, um, you know, if, you are, if I ask you the question, who's a gin and tonic drinker? It's quite difficult because it's a huge yeah. gamut of people who drink gin and tonic, you know? So it's, um, it's not an easy answer, but uh, there's definitely be slight skews and, I think inspiring what I did was I inspired myself of similar brands who've launched in that space before who already cater to the kind of customers that I want and learn learn some of the things that they've been doing and can I take you know not copy them but can I take essence of some of the stuff that they've done into my brand um in a way that's still authentic mm -hmm. uh still still you know keeps keeps my brand uh well for its very much itself but which i can use and learn from them to to implement into into wolfords okay fair enough so i guess like trying to satisfy that broad spectrum and you know uh, with, with a, a drink that is different for them and would you say once it's produced then th this one is a big one for me uh chris like how did you reach that consumer what challenges were there for you to get it onto shelf or into into someone's basket you know 
Yeah, I, <laughs> a big challenge. So I launched in the middle of the pandemic, so uh, um, around July 2020. So, um, uh, so that was that was I'd say the first, the first challenge because originally I built a drink that I expected people to first taste it at a bar or at a restaurant. That's that's how I expected the first ever interaction to be for for my yeah. drink. But, but obviously, I was in a world where that was impossible. You know, all bars, restaurants, etc., were closed, and so immediately before I'd even launched the product, I had to pivot um, and and assume that people would buy online. Um, as it happens, at that particular point in time, everyone was buying online because that was the one thing you could do to treat yourself was buy online. And we we sold out in a month of our first our first batch. It, it just it just flew off. Flew off the shelves effectively, um, and 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 it just sold very very quickly. And then, and then the, you know the next batch sold in in two months. And it it was so it was it was a very we found that online, especially the first year, yeah, fantastic. But as the world changed, um, we had to pivot again. So it was, um, um, and we've been you know, and I'd say I'd say now, online for us, um, in particular, direct from our website makes up such a small percentage whereas at the start it made up all of our sales now it makes yeah. up such a small percentage of sales and it was it was it was really important to pivot and and have different i think have different uh sales channels effectively sort of revenue streams to to go to and to to work with and the one that we found has worked particularly well has been um exporting the product abroad and working with some fantastic so distributors and importers in different countries who've been able to get Wilfrid's out, uh, out and about to bars, restaurants, as well as selling on different online platforms, but in, yeah. in different countries. And um, and it's not it was, it's not been obvious. I'd say I've I've I had in mind, you know, this is how Wilfrid's is going to be sold, and this is how it's going to do well. Actually, from the outset, it was a different uh, sales channel than I expected. Um, and I'd say now that first sales channels, which I worked on, is is almost dead in comparison. You know, so direct to consumer is not not what it used to be two years ago. So yeah. um, things things are constantly changing, and I think having the ability to adapt. Um, I think one of the big benefits of the drinks industry is you can adapt. You know, you you have several different sales channels. It can be retail, it can be on trade, which means bars and restaurants. You know, it can be hotels. It can also be online. It can also be Amazon. Um, it can also be, you know, in stores, etc. So there's there's a lot of different sales channels, and understanding which one works when, at what point in time is, is has been has been helpful. And to be completely honest, there's still some sales sales channels which I've not managed to crack. Like, um, uh, you know, Wilfrid's is not yet in supermarkets in the UK, but it is yeah. in other countries. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a uh, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. It, uh, there's still there's still so much more for us to do, but. Uh, uh, but we've we've seen we've seen big growth in particular in the US and, and and exporting. And then with the online, you know, like even during the pandemic, it must have been incredibly competitive because that's where everything went. How you know, being a new business, new concept, just launched. What would you say was it, or how were you able to drive people to your site? What what did you use? So um. I used, I mean, obviously, you know, at the time, I think social media was was quite was quite big. Um, also, the non-alcoholic space was was still very, it's still very young. 
Mm -hmm. I was in particular was still very very young two years ago two and a half two and a half years ago when I launched so um um and the community was 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 a lot smaller than it is so as a as a brand launching then um we a lot of people became in the community became aware of us very quickly uh, because there weren't many brands is the reality and the US for example when I launched there wasn't even one one shop to buy non-alcoholic products in the US. You know, there was, there was one or two brands already selling there, but that was it. So it was it was really a huge open market to to enter. Um, by, I think by November 2020, we had a first test of a few US uh, customers, a few non-alcoholic online stores were opening up. Now there must be, you know, only two years later, there must be about 10 or 12 online, non-alcoholic online stores. But there must be about thirty or forty non-alcoholic shops which do nothing, but which sell nothing but non-alcoholic, premium non-alcoholic products. So you can imagine like a wine bottle shop, but just for non-alcoholic drinks, and mm -hmm. that just shows how that market has absolutely exploded in the US. Um, and we we were there at the right time. Yeah, we made ourselves available, and and I think a big a big element is is launching into a space which is launching at the right time, so that. If the community is small but has the potential to grow, that you you, you speak with other, I th I think, and I think also speak to other. One of the things I was really worried about doing at the start was like, oh my god, I'm walking walking into 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 a sector where I don't know people. You know, I don't want to speak with my competitors. I don't want you know, um, etc. I think, I you know, I, I even even do I have like imposter syndrome, etc. All of these yeah. things are very very real feelings. Um, but actually. You know, I'm not saying give away all of your tactics and give away your recipe, you know, but <laughs> but but do speak with your competitors and try and collaborate, try and find different ways of, of having relationships. And I think at the start, I was very cautious about that. But actually, if in a new budding market, at least people tend to be quite open and quite collaborative um, mm -hmm. and you can find that, you know, your competitors in, in, in a market in a drink like the drinks industry, people tend to want to try lots of different drinks. You know. They might find a favorite and they might go back to it yes but, um but actually they want to try and so like don't there's no need to fight that and so i think you it's better for us to collaborate with other brands that we're even if competing with and to some extent uh, which we've done you know take a cocktail for example you tend to have three or four ingredients great opportunity to uh to collaborate with others in the industry and have two or three different non-alcoholic drinks in a cocktail that you all make together share on instagram and and that helps all of you get known so i think um yeah i mean getting out there at the start um yeah. is tough, but if there's already a movement if there's already a, a space and if there's a small community specific to your brand i'd say that's the first place to start and just reach out to people speak to them ask advice uh um and then you know we wolf has effectively started i think my first customer was an online non-alcoholic shop uh in the uk and then okay. it, I, I barely reached out to anyone else and it just grew from there and i was just just reacting to demand from there onwards where we had <laughs> people from all over the world reach out to to try Wilfrid's, try and have it on their stores um and, and try and have it in the non-alc space and and then say with those stores, do mm. you do it through uh, couriers or um, as in you do like a pallet's worth, or do you have like um, 
I guess with the store, you'll do, you know, bigger quantities, maybe a pallet. But if it's an individual consumer, maybe wanting a few bottles, am I, am I? Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, yeah. So on my, you know, the, the first few bottles I, I tested and I sent, I did it myself. You know, I, I was shipping, I, I packed them myself. I bought the, bought the packing material, had it all at home. Every evening after work, I'd, I'd basically look at my sales and, 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 you know, it might be like three in a day or, I remember once it was twelve, and it, was, it took like an hour. Um, and then you got it next day. I went to the shops and I put uh, and, and then dropped all of them off and, and sent them. You know, so the first, the first like month or so of doing that, I, yeah. uh, I was like, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like, especially as it picked up. I think we had one one newspaper article, and we had about sold about hundred bottles that day. And I was like, okay, well, no more. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't, I can't be spending my life packing these. And then. And then I started working with uh, what's called um, a 3PL company, or otherwise, um, it's effectively a warehouse that will hold your stock and okay. package and then ship for you. And they integrate completely with your website. As long as your website's on, usually like on Shopify or Squarespace or something that that is quite common, um, they'll integrate with that and everything suddenly becomes automatic. They tend to have better shipping rates, um, so you don't. It doesn't even cost more. It tends to cost less, and it yeah. just takes everything off your your hand. And that's how a lot of direct to consumer brands have grown um, in the last ten years, because thanks to these uh, warehouses that ship for you, and you 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 basically get a pallet ready. That's what I did at least. You you get a pallet ready from your production suppliers. You ship it into them. Um, you. If they're really good, they'll have all the packing material. Um, in my case, I have a specific product which I wanted specific packing material yeah. for, so I buy that and just ship it straight to them, and then they take care of the rest. Um, I see. And then, and what, what, what if you have given that it's a bottle breakages and so on? Will yeah. you know about it? Yes, yes, I will. <laughs> uh, you can, depending on your relationship with them, you can get them to take complete control of it, or you can get involved yourself. I. I still like to read every single email that comes into the company, um, yeah. which is from a customer, so that I have a touch point and I understand what's working and what's not working with the customer. So if I need to make any changes, I can be quite reactive. So okay. I and they also, you know, it's a great way to 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 understand your customer, but also to create loyalty by having a direct uh conversation yeah, communication yeah exactly and i think i think it can be underrated and and um i've had really unhappy customers who've come back to us and thanked us for like speedy replies for being yeah. very human um uh, for giving them an extra bottle for an apology for broken bottles for example and then who become really loyal customers as a consequence so i really think bad experience can be turned into good ones if if dealt with right um and then yeah breakages do happen um we use a uh, completely sustainable um, packing material. Um, you know, it's made of cardboard. I didn't never wanted to use plastic, and okay. um, and it, it tends to be very reliable, but occasionally it's not, uh, and occasionally sure? it will get broken. And the reality is, I think for me, is at this stage in the business, it's more important to to have a good customer experience than just think about profitability. So I will always replace a bottle. And I think actually that's something I'd like to keep throughout the life of the business because if someone's ordered something online, it doesn't get to them. It doesn't matter if it's your fault or the career's fault or whoever's fault. 
they still haven't got their product and it's not fair to them not to have their product so you have to get it to them one way or another but it's it's well that, that's 100 percent true and it's incredible as you say like going back to the fact that you launch at the right time you rode the wave the markets things kind of opened up organically you're happy to collaborate and um now like to say what would be your vision for the brand like say i know you said through distributors you found yourself in some spaces in europe where some supermarkets and with the uk being your home ground what would mm. be your vision what, what what's the next thing for you yeah there's quite over obviously you know beginning of the year you put together a vision for the rest of the year <laughs> and, uh, and a couple of years <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, yeah always good um but you can also be so much in the weeds that you sometimes lose you know you, it's hard to do that but i've actually this this year i've been able to take a bit of a step back and, and plan some some things and um so we've seen big growth that i mentioned to you just before this call yeah. um you know we see we saw in january dry january which is a big month first we saw 40 percent of sales compared to the previous 12 months so in 2023 effectively we've already done about 40 percent of the sales as we did in 2022 and it's it's you know 7th of feb today so it's um it's a great place to be well done yes <laughs> thank you very much so it's a uh, it's good to see that growth you know it's uh we're going to keep it up now um for me definitely the the biggest market at the moment is definitely the us uh and that mm -hmm. is generally a bigger market than the uk um mm -hmm. and and is one of the biggest ones for non-alcoholic in the world as well so there's huge opportunities there it's also the fastest growing i think in the, in the space so it's it's um it's great that we've got such a good presence there you know picked up by things like vanity fair and vogue etc lots of great publications this january and last january so it's it's a it's it's a nice place to be in, and the big focus is going to be maintaining that growth and growth in the us um and then but then in the uk as well you know we as i you know we've, we've had such great growth elsewhere that i haven't had time to focus our attentions on the uk and mm -hmm. it is a big market and i'm here and i'm it, and i've got and i should should have the means to to crack it and break it so um there'll be a big focus there and that that will be getting a team together to to tackle on trade um, which means restaurants bars hotels etc as well as retail um boutique shops but starting with boutique shops but hopefully you know one day step into supermarkets etc yeah. so, so there's um there's there's huge opportunities in many different places um in this in this business it's a lot about that you can get one or two fantastic customers who you know who will end up being sort of 50 percent of your sales in my yeah. case i would say we have hundreds and hundreds of customers who end up being our sales so um um there's good 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 things and bad things with that uh but but one of the good things is you know if, if one of those customers uh stops buying for you for any reason it's not the end of the world so no. your business isn't dependent on it um but we would love to to try and get one or two of those big customers as well now and um well it will happen you know and people travel <laughs> you get the buyers they travel as well and they might exactly. spot the brand somewhere in a bar or in a shop in europe and think oh this is actually in the uk and made in the uk with uh, uk uk ingredients yeah absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. it's uh um... so, no that's really good chris and for you what like what, what would be your top three tips be i know you said a few things like uh that have been incredible to to sum it up 
if I said to you three top tips um, to a young foodie brand, a young drinks brand, what would they be? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I think the first one is probably like, don't, don't underestimate how, how long it can take <laughs> to get your products yeah. off the ground. Uh, even if you think it can be done in two months, just be ready for it to take longer. Uh, um, maybe a second one. And I was thinking about this, I remember you asking me, and it's tough. It's a tough question, this. Um, but um, another one is uh, if you have different sales channels, I would say test, test, test them all, see which one works. Just, just go out and test and test to see what's working. Um, because it may not, you may think one way is the obvious route, but not necessarily and, and other ones are working better for you and you might as well double down on that especially as a startup you tend to be strapped for cash so yeah whoever whoever can help you is is um and help you grow you, you need that and uh and, and it's better to partner with them um as a quick third one the third one i'd say for me this is very personal to me right now um i don't know if it's relevant to everyone but a lot of a lot of people even people who've been in the industry industry forever will tell you lots of things like like it's it's um advice that you have to follow so it, it'll be for example you have to raise money you you have to have a second partner you know you when you're founding or you um you know you can't move to the us before you've established yourselves in the uk um etc all of these like i've heard all of these things before luckily yeah. I've, I've ignored a lot of them and some of them have been great and thank god they gave me that advice you know we changed the packaging as a consequence uh, which has been so important to us because one one person in the industry said, "Look, this isn't. You've no idea. We've no idea what this is. I completely changed the packaging from there, and that has been, mm -hmm. you know, thank goodness we did. Other ones like I heard people say, "Don't go to the US until you know until you've cracked the UK market until you've you've got your home ready." If we'd done that, we would be way behind in the US. Um, and other other much bigger companies than us uh, in the non-alcoholic space in the UK. Um, who do you know much bigger turnover don't don't do a fraction of what we do in the us because we were there at the right time when it mattered uh, yeah. and we've been able to grow together with the us market so it's um you know i i think that's my probably my last piece of advice take to get as much advice as you can but don't necessarily listen to everyone and and don't necessarily follow the obvious uh trends otherwise everyone will be doing that <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's um See what works for you exactly and it has to work for you yeah it's not just what works for the product it also has to work for you for so you know I'm, I'm still bootstrapped as a company um everyone's told me i've had to to raise in order to to stay relevant actually we're still very relevant without having raised um you know we sell more than a lot of brands that raise three million ten million etc and we still on some in some marketplaces we sell more than them um just because the brand is right and the flavor is right and the product's right and, and I've taken the time to grow it at the right pace. So it's it's not, you know, it's it's it, yeah, it's got it's got to work for you too. <laughs> yeah, I agree, man. Chris, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add to it? Um no, I think I think uh, obviously you know check out Wilfrid's at www.wilfridsdrinks.com, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> got to do a last-minute plug. Um, yeah. But um, but no, I think I think that's it. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Riyad, and um, uh, and I love the love this show, even if it's in a, if 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 it, we're only episode three. I think uh, I think it's got a long way to go. Oh, perfect. Thank you, man. I'll, I'll promote it out there. And thank you so much for coming on board and, uh, you know, wishing you all the best. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you. You too.
Have a good one, Chris. We'll be in touch, man. Be in touch. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye.